So I know what you're thinking. Brad's preaching. We're going to get out of church early today. Well, you just might. Walt gave the amen last week, but he's not here today. They're on vacation. Anyhow, last week I spoke, if you remember, I was talking about a book, a book that I was reading. Stephanie was actually reading it, but then I grabbed it away from her and was reading it myself. A book called Fearless by Max Licato. And I was describing to you a, a chapter called The Caffeinated Life, where he was saying, what if life, we talked about last week, if you remember, what if life was like one of those fancy coffee shops that you can go into and order your latte or your cappuccino or espresso, however you want it, with, you know, we said people like to order, but Steve and I, we like the black coffee, right? Yes. But um, what if people could order life the way they wanted it, the way they ordered uh, their, their, their coffees? Uh, we talked about, remember we said, uh, give, me a, uh, what was, give me a tall, extra hot cup of adventure, cut the dangers with two shots of good health, or uh, I want a, deca a, a decaf brew of longevity, uh, with a sprinkle of fertility and go heavy on the agility without disability. Um, oh, oh, the one, I'll go with a grande. Grande, that's the fancy word they like to use for large. Uh, happy latte with a dollop of love sprinkled with a Caribbean retirement. So for those of you who like the beach, when it's not covered in oil, uh, Caribbean retirement. But uh, we said that would be a popular coffee shop, right? Almost as popular as the Sheets coffee counter at 6.30 in the morning uh, during the week. But uh, we said oftentimes life gives us, now this is a bad thing for me, just so you understand. Life gives us a hazelnut with non-dairy creamer uh, and Splenda when all we wanted was a cup of black coffee. Life is full of changes. Life is full of transitions and life is full of altercations. We said people move down the ladder out of the house or over for somebody else or people might move up through the system. But change is always constant. You know, we learned about that in science class when we were in high school. Change is a constant thing. Some changes are welcome. Other changes are not. And we said, what's next? And we went to John the 14th chapter and I started in uh, at like verse 15, I think it was. We talked about Jesus with his disciples scenario being, you know, the Last Supper, and Jesus said, I'm going away. Now, if the disciples really had paid attention, they probably would have caught on to other clues that Jesus gave, the fact that things were going to change. They spent the past three years um, tight with Jesus all the time. I'm sure they were recognized that was part of their... I mean, when somebody asks you who you are, how do you respond? I mean... What do you say when, when, when people ask you, who are you? Maybe sometimes we give our, uh, our, our occupation, perhaps. You know, I mean, I will say I'm a youth director, youth leader, drywall guy. I'm not much of that, though. I'm more like drywall boy than drywall guy. But, uh, you know, people oftentimes define themselves by their occupation, right? You know, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm this, I'm that. These guys had associated with Jesus. I'm one of Jesus' right-hand guys. I mean, you know, John, the beloved, you know, known as Jesus' favorite. But I don't think John used that as in, like, conceit, you know. John used it tongue-in-cheek in the Gospel of John, referring to himself as the, the disciple who Jesus loved, but never actually stamped his name on it. But, but it did it in a humble way. But their association had been with Jesus for these past three years. That's, I'm sure, where they found their identity. But imagine their shock when they find out things are changing, we said. 
Uh, it's Thursday evening on the night of the Passover celebration. Um, you know, and they were optimistic. I mean, they came through the, the, the triumphal entry. People recognizing, Je they thought people were recognizing Jesus for who he really was. But they were having more and more opportunities. Um, Jesus, known as the hope for the everyday man sort of now in Jerusalem, and they're making plans. They talk about who's going to be first in the kingdom, who's going to sit on Jesus' right hand. We said they were envisioning Israel restored to former glory. So they had all these great, wonderful, positive ideas of what they felt was where life was going. We all have a vision, perhaps. We don't always have a positive vision for where our lives are headed, but a lot of times we have a vision of where we would like to see life go, right? Does it always go down that path? Nope. Nope. It's that hazelnut coffee again. But Jesus laid it on them. I'm going away. And they were stunned. And even Thomas said, God, in, in, in verse 5 of chapter 14, Jesus said, you, you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? They were just handed a big shock and a big change. And we read from Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything under the sun. Uh, and you know what? I love these first eight verses of chapter 3, so we're going to read them anyhow. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear. There's time to mend. There's a time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. We said God dishes life on earth to us really in much the same way that God manages this creation that he has. Seasons. We talked about seasons. I had a pretty picture of fall with the little brook and that, and I think we have it later on somewhere else. But um, we said we know we need winter. The earth needs rest. We need rest too, okay? We need spring. And we talked about the changes that come with life and, and all those things, and I'm going to move along here. But we said what if... Um, what if this time here on earth is preparing us for our next time in heaven, okay? And we read from 2 Corinthians 4.17, these troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all our troubles seem like nothing. It's hard to imagine some of the cares that we face in this world becoming like nothing when we're in the middle of heartbreak, discouragement, disappointment, doubt, you name it. It's hard to imagine, but the Bible says it. We're just crazy enough that we got to believe it. These troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all these things seem like nothing. So, change. Now, that's the review, and this is where I wanted to go to this morning. Uh, what do we need to do in seasons 
of change. What must we do in seasons of change? A few things that I want to highlight this morning is this. First, we need to be prepared to move. Uh, I spoke on Elijah back in, I don't remember when it was, late winter, early spring, whenever the last time pastor was away and I preached. Um, Elijah had to relocate to get his provision. And of all things, he got his provision from a flock of ravens, right? I think it was at at the brook of Kareth. But Elijah had to move. So there are times in seasons of change that we have to be prepared to move, to change. I'm not saying literally, you know, pack up the house, sell it. That happens in life too. But we need to do something different. All right? We need to get ourselves into a new location, a better mindset, if you will, to receive what God has for us. Whether we like it or not, change happens and change is coming in life. It took place for the disciples at the Last Supper. They fell apart, if you remember. What happened in the, in the coming few days when Jesus was tortured and crucified? Some denied Jesus. Some ran away. Some hid. But we said in John, the 14th chapter, Jesus promised that another is coming. Jesus said, if I'm going away, another is coming. The Holy Spirit. And the disciples eventually allowed this truth to sink into their lives. And these disciples were eventually able to put themselves in a place where Jesus could reinstate them and show them grace and mercy and reinvigorate them. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he encouraged them to be prepared for the Holy Spirit. And so we see in the book of Acts that they were. They put themselves in a place. They went to a location They had to move. They had to change their attitude. They had to change their mindset. Elijah had to change his mindset, had to run, all right? Had to change his location to get God's provision. These disciples placed themselves in an area in an upper room, but they waited on God. They waited for God's provision. They didn't struggle. They didn't strive to get it done themselves, but they trusted and waited for God. And when the power of the Holy Spirit came, when they were dwelling in unity... They were filled, and the kingdom of God grew, and the church was so established so strongly to the point where we see that thousands in different days were added to the kingdom of God. John grew. Peter became a bold speaker. Peter, who denied Jesus, denied knowing him, became this bold person under the power of the Holy Spirit who was able to confess faith in Jesus Christ and tell about him to other people, big crowds. Secondly, we need to do this. We have to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't shooting blindly in the dark when he said, I'm leaving, but I'm sending another. He wasn't shooting blindly in the dark when he said that we would do even greater things. The disciples experienced the power of God's Holy Spirit moving among the people. And we know from the Word of God that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Last Sunday was Independence Day, 4th of July, and we had a few things in the video clip kind of went a little haywire. But one thing I wanted to stress last week was, in my opinion, right, and this is Brad's opinion, and I don't think I'm out in left field here, um, I think our founding fathers of this nation felt and knew the presence 
of God's Holy Spirit. Now, we might not say in the, in the way that Pentecostals might describe the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, but, you know, every man, every woman receives the Holy Spirit at salvation. It's the Holy Spirit that carries God's salvation to us. But I think they did because in the presence of God's Spirit, we know is freedom. And in the Declaration of Independence, they declared freedom for who? Everyone. Everyone. For all humans. They said all were created equal by their Maker. Talk about moments of change. Um, in the third election of our nation's history, uh, George Washington was, was president and voted in basically uncontested for his first two terms and said, that's it, I'm done. It's time to retire and, and go away and set a precedent. John Adams uh, ran for the office of president afterward. Adams, who had been Washington's vice president. Adams and Je Jefferson, excuse me, uh, both ran for uh, the presidency in the third election of the nation. And it was a hotly contested election. Uh, the ballots from the state of Georgia were highly contested. And even to the point where the rules back then were that John Adams had to count the ballots in front of the Senate. He had to count them himself. Um, and you know what? When he came to the ballots from the state of Virginia, John Adams stopped and paused for, I think, I read like almost to the point of several minutes, went and sat down to give Thomas Jefferson a chance to speak up and say that he was contesting those ballots. But Jefferson never, never said a word. And Jefferson was quoted as saying, and I don't, I don't have the exact quote down here, but Jefferson said he did not want to attempt to rend the country apart for the sake of the ballots from West Virginia, or from Georgia, excuse me. And you know, four years later, there was another season of change. Four years later, Thomas Jefferson won the election, and uh, John Adams being a Federalist, Thomas Jefferson being a Republican, and Federalists hated the Republicans, Republicans hated the Federalists. It was very bad blood between the two groups. And it was another election which there were a few things which they said could have been argued or contested. John Adams left the city of Washington, D.C. before Thomas Jefferson's inauguration in order to not cause trouble and not cause strife. Moments of change. Moments of change. And I want to share with you a quote of a, of a book I've been reading called um, Patriot's Guide to American History. And, and the author, Schweikert, says this, it goes without saying, of course, that most of these men, talking about the, the, uh, the writers and signers of the Declaration of Independence, most of these men were steeped in the traditions and teachings of Christianity. Almost half the signers of the Declaration of Independence had some form of seminary training or degree. John Adams, certainly and somewhat derogatorily viewed by his contemporaries as the most pious of the early revolutionaries, claimed that the revolution, Adams said, connected in one 
indissoluble bond, the principles of civil government, and the principles of Christianity. And John Adams' cousin Sam, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, said that it restored to the sovereign, capital S, he said, to whom all men ought to be obedient. They didn't see any separation, any division between their faith and between the Declaration of Independence. Our founding fathers had a vision of a new nation born on this continent in which all men were equal, not born to higher states. And they wrestled, even in the writing of the Declaration of Independence, even in the very beginning of, of writing the Articles of Confederation, as they're called, tried to tackle the problem of slavery in the United States and uh, tried to address it then, but were unable to because it was such a divisive issue, it would have destroyed everything at that point, but left it till later. But there was hot argument over that. But there were scholars who say, and we hear it taught in classes, I remember hearing it taught in, in history classes in high school, that said that colonial America were not people of faith. And I've heard this uh, percentage thrown out. They say only that, that only 20% of the colonial population was churched population. But here's the thing we need to understand. There were three major denominations present in colonial America. Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians, okay? And in this time, there were very fast rising groups. Uh, John Wesley's Methodists were rising in popularity and so were Baptists, okay? They were not counted to the point where these three major um, denominations of this time went to state assemblies asking for protection against itinerant Methodist and Baptist ministers. They went to the state to get them shooed away and to have that made illegal so these guys couldn't come through and preach salvation, okay? Competition was very fierce. But God was alive and God was well in colonial America and God was very quite popular. So anyhow, I'm sorry, I move away from the history stuff. You know, it says in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's worth noting that Jefferson, in writing the Declaration of Independence, recognized that humans were created by a supreme being, and that all rights existed only in such a contest, okay? So, those were times of big change. We have times in our own lives, bringing it here to today, we have times in our own lives where we get into these moments of change. And the third thing I wanted to emphasize is this. We must not be afraid when it comes to moments of change, okay? We cannot afford to be afraid. I wanna read a story I came across. March 3rd, 1943, in the city of London, England, at 8.17 in the evening, bomb raid sirens screamed over the city. Everyone looked into the air. Everything stopped. Anti-aircraft artillery 
launched salvos into the air. People began to scream. Some threw themselves to the ground. Some covered their heads because of the air raid sirens going off. Everybody looked for enemy planes in the sky. But the fact that they didn't see any didn't stop the increasing hysteria. So people ran to an underground station called Bethnal Green. It was a bomb shelter where by this time more than 500 citizens had taken refuge. In the next 10 minutes, 1,500 more people crammed into this shelter. But trouble began when a crush of people reached the stairwell entrance at the same time. A woman carrying her baby lost her footing on one of the 19 steps, uneven steps, that led down from the street. And when she stumbled, it interrupted the flow, causing a domino effect of people tumbling on top of her. Within seconds, hundreds of terrified people thrown together, piled up like laundry in a basket because of air raid sirens going off. Then things got worse because people who got there late thought that they were being kept out on purpose. So they pushed, and they pushed, and the crowd crammed. The terror lasted for less than 15 minutes. And this is a horrible story. It took four hours to disentangle, I read, the bodies. In the end, 173 men, women, and children died at the entrance to a small air raid shelter. No bombs ever fell. Not a single fusillade of fire killed anyone. But fear, fear is what killed people that day. We cannot be afraid in times of change. Fear loves a stampede. Fear loves sleepless nights. Fear loves to put us in absolute needless worry. What's the, what's the statistic the pastor quoted? 99% of the things we fear never happen. So how far do we have to go till we get the next be afraid note? Flip the page in the newspaper. There's something to be afraid of. Turn the radio dial. There's something to be afraid of. Change the channel on the television. There's something to be afraid of. According to the media, the world is one scary place. And we should suspect a campaign to keep it that way. Fear sells papers, fear sells programming. Can you hear the teaser now? Think of every crazy news story that you hear of some reason to be fear. Coming up, the frightening truth about sitting still in a church pew for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, you know? How coffee affects your IQ. Which there might be truth to that, because. What you can do to avoid the danger. What you may not know that's dangerous about putting mustard on your hot dog. There are all these things, all these crazy news stories, things that we should be afraid of. This guy, Frank Ferretti, all right, did some research into the use of fear by the media and wanted to count the number of times the phrase at risk was used in British newspapers. In 1994, the phrase, two little words, at risk, showed up 2,037 times. That was 94. By the end of 1995, 
that number had doubled. It increased in half in 1996. Fast forward four years, the year 2000. In the year 2000, in British newspapers, the phrase at risk was printed more than 18,000 times. Now, did danger in the world actually increase nine times in six years? I really doubt that. Bad news everywhere you go. Global warming, asteroids, SARS, you know, the infection that can't be uh, taken care of with antibiotics. Wars, earthquakes, tsunamis, AIDS. Does it ever stop? This is the first time since World War II that parents expect life for the next generation to be worse than it was for them. People used to think that their children's lives, and I've, hey, friends, I've used the words. I've used the words, I fear for what country my children may live in, okay? I have. I've been affected by it. Even though life expectancy has doubled in the United States and disease research is at an all-time high, we would think that the bubonic plague was raging in the streets. I ran across something else. Bob Garfield, uh, a reporter, tracked health articles in major publications, and this is what Bob Garfield said that I found out. He said, according to publications in all different kinds of uh, outlets, 59 million Americans have heart disease, okay? 53 million Americans suffer from migraine headaches. 25 million Americans have osteoporosis. 16 million people struggle with obesity. 3 million have cancer. 2 million have severe brain disorders. He said that apparently, with all the other things that he added up, 543 million Americans should consider themselves to be seriously ill. That's very troubling, especially since there's only 266 million people in America. He said, either as a society we are doomed or somebody is seriously double-dipping, okay, on numbers. There is a stampede of fear going past our doors a million times a day, blazing past our computer screens, blazing through our phones, going across our television screen and splattered on the pages of our newspapers. But we can't afford to get caught up in a stampede of fear, friends. Because fear is what harms, fear is what kills people. We need, as Christians, to be the calming voice, telling people not to fear, not to be overwhelmed by danger. We can't fear change. Change is going to take place whether we like it or not. We can't be afraid of it. We need to trust in our Savior who said He will take care of us no matter what happens. We need to be marked by the fact that we are influenced by a different voice, God's voice. Yes, are there threats in this world? Absolutely. We need to acknowledge threats that exist. But we cannot afford to be defined by threats. Our founding fathers were afraid of a very real danger. They 
had hits, basically, essentially, by the king, they were marked for death because, according to King George, they were committing treason. They were afraid of a very real danger, but they were convinced, convinced that they were hearing God's voice and that people were truly created to be free by their maker, not born as a subject to somebody else. Courage. Who's the one that said courage is fear that has said its prayers? I forget who said that. But courage. We need to be people of courage. Courage does not panic. Courage prays. Courage does not bemoan the ills that have fallen me. Courage believes. Courage does not language, languish excuse me, in fear. Courage listens to the voice of God's Holy Spirit. So, I have some verses that I want to share with you. It's good news, okay? Not fear, not scary. It's going to be all right, and we're going to be okay. But when change takes place, we must be able to move in courage because we know that God has taken care of us. The little latte cup makes sense from last week, if you remember. Anyhow. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Be of cheer. Why? Your sins are forgiven. Matthew 14, 27. Be of good cheer, Jesus said. It is I. Don't be afraid. Matthew 24, verse 6. When reports come in of wars and rumored wars, keep your head and don't panic. That's uh, the Message Bible translation. John chapter 14, verse 1. As my grandmother always said to us, let not your heart be troubled. John 14, 27. Don't let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Luke 12, 7. Don't fear then, Jesus said, because you are of more value than many sparrows. And also in Luke 12, 7. Don't be afraid. Stand with me, would you? In the midst of change, we need to be prepared. Prepared to move ourselves either to a different frame of mind or a different location. When change takes place, we also said, secondly, we must not what? We must, excuse me, we must go in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. And third, we said, we cannot afford to be afraid, but have courage. Jesus said, He is with us in every circumstance. Jesus told his disciples, yes, I'm going to heaven, but I am sending another just like me. And you will do greater things than these, Jesus said. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Change is going to take place in life, but we are going to be all right, friends.